Last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. It's a real milestone to me as we've spent over nine years going through the Bible and we've finally come to the last chapter. We're going to take two weeks to cover it, so we'll actually finish the Bible next week, Lord will, and unless he comes back. And I'd love to have the rapture come right in the middle of chapter 22. That would be great. But uh, this is the good part. You've gone through the whole Bible and have the history of all that God has been doing to redeem his people. And now as we've been in the book of Revelation, we see how God's wrapping it all up. And chapters 21 and 22 talk about heaven. Talk about the ultimate destination of people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And then next week we'll just see some closing remarks that, that the Lord has for us here in this book. We saw last week, chapter 21, gives us sort of the physical environment of heaven, more or less. It's kind of impersonal, but it's all about the structure of the new Jerusalem, the beauty as the light hits it and comes through it, the various colors that come off of it that look like precious stones, the street that looks like gold except it's transparent. And so all of these amazing things that we observe as being a description of the environment of heaven. But here in chapter 22 is where what I say, and I entitled the message, Heaven Gets Personal. Because now it becomes more about our relationship to God and in heaven and what's happening to us and what heaven has to do with us. And that's very exciting as we read these verses. So let's begin with verse 1 of Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Let's stop there for a minute. Um, you can appreciate clean, clear, flowing water because that's what we, we need in order to survive. We basically drink water that's relatively polluted, but pure, clean, clear water is something that's very special to us. And then these fruit trees that would be bearing, it would appear that they bear 12 fruits and every month that presents another 12 fruits, just a whole variety of fruit, sounds good too. But here's the thing, when we get to heaven, are we really going to need water to drink? Are we really going to need fruit to eat? Because it would seem that our body, the cycle as we, as we process ingredients that provide nutrients for us to continue to survive, it would seem like in our heavenly bodies that wouldn't be necessary anymore. It would be, hey, our bodies are perfect, therefore no shortage of moisture, no, no uh, dehydration that would be possible, um, no hunger. Um, we're going to have bodies like Jesus had. But, you know, interestingly, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, one time he met the disciples on the Sea of Galilee there on the shore, and he was cooking up some fish. Another time he came to the upper room 
And he goes, you guys got anything to eat? Um, so, and then he also, with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he broke bread with them. So, but it would seem that he didn't need that. While he was in his earthly body in that form, he needed it. He could hunger. He said, even on the cross, I thirst. But in heaven, and with those new bodies, we don't have that need. So therefore, I don't think we're eating because we're hungry, and I don't think we're drinking because we're thirsty, and yet, here is this case in heaven whereby a central feature is this amazing river, and it, it seems to run down the street. The street is probably enormous because we saw last week, there's one street that runs through this entire New Jerusalem, and it leads from the throne of God everywhere else. And this New Jerusalem is huge, hundreds of miles you know, across and high and, and deep. And the street that looks like gold is running through the whole thing. Well, this river is running along kind of in the middle of this street. And then there's a tree of life that would seem to be in the middle of the river and the street, but it's also on either side of it. So either it is a tree that branches out over this whole thing, an enormous tree it would have to be, or what's linguistically possible also is that these are multiple trees running along the sides and down the middle of the street and of the river. But at any rate, they're providing fruit. So what's this about? Well, what I see here is such a beautiful example of when we get to heaven, there being an atmosphere of, for lack of a better term, personal indulgence. God just gives it to us just to bless us. Not that, oh, we're thirsty, so we need it. Oh, I'm hungry, so give me something to eat. He just goes, enjoy this. And in God's creation, there's a, there's a certain extreme nature of it. There's a certain indulging sort of capacity that God seems to do. He always creates things that are way over the top. See, this whole universe was created for us, and yet there are galaxies that are so far away that we will never see them, at least short of heaven, short of at least the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. Why did God make the universe so big? It's one reason why people can't believe that this whole universe is about God relating to us because they go, we're just on this little dinky speck of a planet in this vast universe. But see, they're not aware of how God is. He loves to overdo it. He loves to indulge upon his children. He, he so often gives us way more than we need so that we can enjoy the vastness of what God has done for us. So he makes an ocean so deep that we'll never see the bottom, that probably no one ever will. Even if, even if he tarries for another thousand years, not every aspect of the ocean floor will ever be completely discovered by man. And yet it's there. Why? Because God likes to do things over the top. God loves to go check this out and just absolutely overwhelm us. And so in heaven, it'll be that way. You like water? Check this out. This is amazing. How big is this river? I don't know. 
We talked last week when we saw in chapter 21 that it says there's no more sea. And I said, so if you want to surf in heaven, might be out of luck. Probably want to do it during the millennium. You'll have a thousand years of surfing. Somebody after first service told me there's a river down in Central America or South America somewhere that has a perfect seven-foot wave that's there all the time. So if you get to heaven and you want to surf, I'm guessing it's on this river. But this is everything that you could ever want in abundance. And unlike the ocean, you could just drink it just for fun, just to be blessed. The fruit, and I love fruit and almost every fruit. It's so refreshing, especially when it's fresh off of a tree. I remember as a little kid, we had a peach tree in our backyard and nothing tasted better than taking a peach right off that tree and eating it. It was so delicious. We'd chop them up and put milk on it for breakfast. And we had a lemon tree. And you, sorry if I'm making you hungry, but just fresh lemonade right off these huge lemons off of our tree in our backyard. It seemed to have lemons year round. And I love that. But today I have an issue with blood sugar. And so I can't eat fruit like I want to. But when I get to heaven, I can eat it all I want. Um, it's important for you to eat all the meat you can now because there's not going to be any meat because animals aren't going to die. So, um, and it, it would appear that there aren't going to be vegetables either. So if that's important to you, go for it. Maybe, aren't, maybe isn't fish. We're going to eat on a fruit diet. But it's not going to be a boring fruit diet because it would seem that the fruit changes every month. Here's 12 now 12 more next month, 12 more. Interesting, too, that there are months in heaven. Even though we're not limited by time, yet it seems that there's a way to account for the passing of time in heaven. But all of this is just about God indulging us, God blessing us, and he loves to do that. He loves to, even now, it's why, you know, the Bible talks about, Paul told the rich people, Paul told Timothy, tell the rich people, you know, if you're rich, don't get attached to this stuff, but God has given you everything to enjoy and then to share as well. Don't be greedy with it. But it's a God who likes us to have more than we need. And most of us have more than we need. And that's just God going over the top. Well, here, when it comes to a diet, it's not going to be for something that we need. It's just going to be for pure enjoyment. And that speaks to us. You know, in our day and age, man, water is so important. We'd die without it. Food is important. We would starve to death without it. So in heaven, it's not important, and we have it in an abundance of variety and, and tastiness and everything, greater than what the Garden of Eden had. With all those trees, you can eat all of them but one. Here, you can eat all of them everything that he has, and it's a tree of life, and it's water of life. Water, like Jesus promised to the woman at the well, it'll cause you to never thirst. You'll just, you'll just enjoy it. You'll take it in. It'll actually be, you know, bubbling up inside of you all the time. Water and food are pictures of life. And God, Jesus said, I came that you'd have life abundantly. So abundant water, abundant fruit, is him saying abundant life in the future. I don't know literally, is it a river, is it fruit? But, but that's the picture that he's painting here. And, and for I have no reason to believe that it isn't actually going to happen. And so look forward to sitting next to that river and just enjoying it, munching on a piece of fruit, maybe fruit you've never seen before, something tastier. 
I'm looking forward to the month when the fruit is chocolate. But, <laughs> but here we see in heaven abundance, blessing. Now, interesting, it says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And boy, people get really concerned. What do you mean healing of the nations? You mean you can get sick and then you need to come to the New Jerusalem and get some leaves in order to heal you? Um, then other people have gone, well, there must be people there maybe who carried over from the millennium who don't have those new bodies. The Bible certainly doesn't, doesn't teach that from what I can see. The word there for healing comes from the Greek word therapeuo. It's the word that we, we transliterate it to therapy or therapeutic. And probably, you know, therapy can be more than just taking someone who's sick and making them well. If we can say that something is therapeutic, just if it's healthy, if it's invigorating. I don't know about you, I personally don't like massage. But there are some people, I know whenever we take people over to Asia, they're real big on foot massages and things like that. And I, to me, there's just nothing creepier than to have somebody rubbing my feet. But there are people who just, I would stand outside and listen to all the people on our missions trips and our missionaries just in there, oh, you know, as, as their feet are being rubbed. But there are people who find that therapeutic. That's the kind of invigorating sort of quality that are probably involved in this thing. Maybe you like aromatherapy. Maybe, for me, therapy is riding my motorcycle. It's just like, I don't need it, but oh man, is it therapeutic? Is it health-inducing? And so all of that, everything, we just have in an incredible way when we're in heaven. And so we see, first of all, and interesting that he puts it first, this personal indulgence that goes way beyond our needs to just wanting to bless us. A second thing that we see, though, is that there's also personal service or ministry. In verse 3, there shall be no more curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And then down in verse 5, no night, no lamp, light of the sun. We talked about that last week. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So everyone who is in heaven is in a position of responsibility, serving God and in a leadership capacity, reigning as had been promised from back in chapter 1 where it talked about us being a kingdom of priests. And we saw it earlier in the millennium that we would rule and reign with him. Now we see that for all of eternity. Now, it's easy to understand why you need you know, people to reign in the millennium because there are people there who are still able to sin. But in heaven, what does this mean? And I don't know. It seems like it might be connected with the rewards that God promises to people who are faithful to him. And so perhaps different levels of administrative capacities. Um, perhaps you rule over a galaxy or a particular locale. You have responsibility. But here's the point. In heaven, you'll be serving. In heaven, you will be doing. You'll be working. You will have things to do. And, you know, there are some of us, as I said last week, whose idea of heaven is, finally, we can stop. Finally, we don't have to do anything. But the truth is, we are designed to do things. And if you've ever gotten to the point where you now don't have to work anymore. 
often that's a hard thing to adjust to. When people retire, they need to find something else to do or it's just empty. And you see this happening with women who have been raising their children. And they go through all the difficulties that are involved with that. And then one day, poof, the kids are gone and the empty nest sets in. And, and boy, I remember when Ann went through this, like in one month, one of our sons went away to college, the other one got married. So we went from having them and all their stuff and everything be the center of their house to where now they're gone, they just left their stuff. But, <laughs> but it was really a hard adjustment. Now, you might hate your work right now. Whether it's as a housewife, whether it's going to work every day, you might feel like, oh man, I have to do this. Because if you don't work, you figure, how are we gonna pay the bills? If you don't you know, take care of your kids, who will? And all those sorts of things. But as it turns out, and you discover this in life, you were designed to work. And it was never a bad thing to have things to do. It's all about the attitude. Do you have to or do you get to? The same thing goes with serving God. It's a, it's a privilege to serve God, and yet sometimes we get to the point where it feels like it's drudgery. Oh man, we have to do this. Why doesn't somebody else do it? I hate this, or I don't like what I get to do for God. I wanna do something else. When we get to heaven, you're not just gonna hang it up. You're gonna find out I was always supposed to work. And you'll feel so sorry that you didn't appreciate the opportunities that you had to serve God while you were here. Now, for those of you who have no interest in serving God, this might be bad news. That all of a sudden when you get to heaven, you're gonna find out it's about serving God. That's an important part of it. But for most of us, that's a real blessing to know that I can be used by God, to know that I can do meaningful things for Him, with and for His people, serving Him. Hey, that's what heaven, that's a big part of it. And we're all gonna be there working and serving because we're designed to do that. And so that's kind of a second personal thing is personal service or personal ministry. A third thing that we see is personal intimacy in verse four. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Seeing him face to face, that's going to make all the difference in the world. Today we struggle to see God, to know him, to sense him being close to us. But when we get to heaven, we will have perfect knowledge of him. Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 13 that today we see through a glass darkly. We see through a foggy mirror. But he said, then we will see face to face. John talks about in 1 John, you know, we're the children of God now, but it hasn't yet really developed what we're gonna be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, and everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. His name on our foreheads, it could be that his name is just on our foreheads, but this is probably talking about, in the Bible, when they would talk about the name, they're talking about the character. So it talks about God magnifying his word above his name and things like that. Probably what this is, is that when people see our face, they see him. They see that godly quality. They see his 
countenance, the, as they look at the face, we light up the way he lights up because we're reflecting his light. People show on their faces who they really are. They show the depths of their being based on their face. You can see somebody who lives their life being really bitter and complaining, maybe when they're young, they still look good and they can flash that smile when they need to. But man, does that catch up to you as you take on a face that becomes more and more bitter and angry and things like that. You can look at a face and you can draw good conclusions about what's going on inside there. That's what the countenance that the Bible talks about does. And it talks about God lifting up his countenance upon us, him smiling on us, him looking at us that way. Years ago when um, I was talking one time about the face and how important it is, and, and I said, sometime when you're watching Christian television, just turn the sound down and just watch them. And I said, you know, it's amazing. It looks like they're really mad. My son Danny was at home watching on the internet stream, and he goes, hey, Dad, I turned down the sound on you, and you looked mad. I'm like, <laughs> but our faces reflect what's going on. So in heaven, we see him as he is. We know even as we are known, and our faces look like it. There's an intimacy, an intimacy that we never know now, but an intimacy that then we will know. And, you know, all of these things that we see in these verses are things that today we crave. They're things today that we look forward to. Boy, it would be nice to have something extra. Well, then we will. Man, would it be good to find something that I can do for God, where I can use my gifts and do exactly what I was born to do. Yeah, then you will forever. And then, hey, I want to be close to God. And often we operate under the assumption that if we do the Christian life the way that we should, that we're always going to feel really close to God. In fact, as we grow in our walks with God, we think, we ought to feel him more. We ought to sense him more. It should just get deeper and deeper in terms of that connection with him. Well, I have news for you. That is what's going to happen in heaven. I thank God for the times we feel close to him now, but that is not what the Christian life looks like right now. And if you expect it to, you're going to be disappointed. Usually what happens is people, as they've been a Christian a long time, they feel like they ought to feel God more. So when they don't, they just pretend. They just learn to fake it. Because see, we're designed to walk by faith. And faith means you don't see, you can't feel, and yet you continue to obey. And so as God helps us to grow, often we will feel him less. We want to feel him, but sometimes it just doesn't happen the way we want it to. Well, don't pretend or fake it. Ultimately in heaven is when we will have this full expression of intimacy with God. And we look forward to that. Seeing all of these things, though, as we come to verse 6 and on through verse 12, we see the, the fourth thing that is a very personal thing about heaven, and that is the promise of heaven. The promise, the, the declaration that Jesus gives us over and over again, I'm coming quickly. Look at verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. You can trust them. 
The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. That means either it's coming soon, when it happens, it's going to happen suddenly. The idea is you should live in an expectancy of this. There's a promise that these things that we are craving, the abundance of heaven, the service of heaven, the, 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 you know, the intimacy with God, it's going to happen. And it could happen at any time. He says, must shortly take place. Verse 7, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Hang on to this stuff because I'm coming quickly. Over in verse 12, again, he says, I'm coming quickly. In verse 10, it says, the time is at hand. This whole section is this promise that says, I'm telling you I'm coming and you need to be ready. You need to expect this. You need to live with a sense that I could come back at any time. We have that promise, and he lays it out here. He says, and then you have this thing in verse 8. John saw and heard this stuff, and he was blown away by it. And he fell down to worship the thing that he saw, which was the angel. And he said, see that you don't do that. The angel goes, don't worship me. I'm just a servant just like you, just like the prophets. And just like everyone who, who values the words of this book, worship God. I love this, that the angel goes, don't worship me. I'm just telling you this stuff. I'm not someone to bow down to. Only God should be worshipped. Interesting that when people worship Jesus, they're not only allowed to, they're told to. They're encouraged to. When Thomas bowed down at Jesus' feet in the upper room and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't say, oh, don't worship me, just worship God. This is, again, another indication. Clearly, Jesus is God. Anyone who denies that Jesus is God just ignores all of Scripture, and especially this book of Revelation where Jesus says he's the Alpha and the Omega, and it says that God is the Alpha and Omega. So all of these things indicate that. But again, it's a part of the promise of God of that ultimate worship. Verse 10, and he said to me, don't seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. The fact that he is coming soon means you need to get this word out. Sadly, a lot of people don't even read the book of Revelation, even though we saw back in the first chapter, there's a promise of blessing to people who read it. Here in the last chapter, a promise of blessing to people who keep it. And, and yet people just go, oh, I don't know, it's too confusing, I'm not into it. Oh, nobody really agrees on what it means. Hey, this is something that we're so blessed when we do it, it's not supposed to be sealed. It's not supposed to be hid away and locked up. The time is at hand. He told them, don't seal this book. And then um, again in verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now, this doesn't mean that he comes back and he rewards good people by giving them heaven. He's here talking about the fact that we are rewarded in heaven for what we did here on earth. This isn't your salvation, but it's rewards. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, so you could go back if you're, if you're not clear on that and listen to the study on Revelation chapter 20. Or you can read in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 about the rewards judgment, the Bema Seat judgment of Christ, and you can see what all this is about. 
But he's gone, I'm coming quickly. Don't forget that you're going to be rewarded. Now, verse 11 is interesting because it says, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. Or um, possibly, he who is unjust is just going to be more unjust. He who is filthy is going to get more filthy. He who is righteous, still going to be righteous, but better. He who is holy, still going to be holy, but better. Now, why is this crammed in the middle of this promise of the return of Christ? Well, the point that I think he's trying to make is, don't think that when the moment comes, all of a sudden you're going to switch. You're going, yeah, yeah, I saw the movie, read about the rapture. When I hear the trumpet, I'm going to go, okay, Jesus, now's the time. His point is, you know, people don't change their minds. Now, God can work on us, and he is leading us in a particular direction. But there are a lot of people, I mean, if you don't like God now, what makes you think that you would like him for eternity? If you enjoy living a crummy life now, chances are, apart from a miraculous work of the Spirit of God, which many of us have experienced, you're on that trajectory and it's going to keep going. So the idea that he's saying is, look, if you're going to get your act together and you want to appreciate the coming of the Lord, respond to his promises, why not do it now? Why not live now in light of that instead of thinking somehow in the future that all of a sudden you're going to wake up and something's going to be different? The truth is you make your choice of how you're going to live and where you want to go. And the decision of where you're going to go has to do with the decision that you make now. All of this in the middle of the promise of the return of Christ. Now, this whole thing of the, what we call the imminent return of Christ, it is, it is imminent, it is here, it's going to come suddenly. This becomes kind of confusing. A lot of people were really into the imminent return of Christ back in the 80s. Because a lot of people knew Christians, excited about the Lord, and we see what you know seems to be prophecy unfolding, Israel coming back as a nation. And so people did the math, the Israel being you know recognized as a nation, a generation will come to pass after the fig tree flowers. So you go 40 years, take off seven years for the tribulation, and you've calculated roughly when Jesus is going to come back. Well, obviously he didn't show up. And ever since then, there have been people who do the math differently and come to a conclusion, Jesus is going to come by this particular date. A lot of people have rejected the whole idea of eminency because they're burned out by all the promises that got their hopes up and then they were dashed. Well, the apostles could have had that attitude as well because all of the writers of Scripture had a sense that Jesus could come back at any time. Jesus gave them that impression. I mean, he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. So they're just like, okay, we're ready. And throughout Scripture, you see tons of exhortations by each of the writers of Scripture, from Peter and from James and from Paul, and all of them talking about this promise of his return. Now, you know, a, a few of them, for instance, James talks about be patient until the coming of the Lord. Well, obviously that means that's going to happen to you. 
Um, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said, we're eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, he closed the book by using the Aramaic term Maranatha, which means, O Lord, come right now, quickly. Then in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, Our citizenship is in heaven from whom we wait for a Savior to come to us. And I could just give you a ton more. It's throughout Titus 2.13. Paul tells Titus, We're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They lived with that expectation. In fact, Paul, when he was writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, talking about the rapture of the church, he said, And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So Paul was like, those of us who are still alive, and he was getting older at that point, he fully expected the return of Christ. Now, you look at it, and, and, and very few theologians even deny that the disciples believed that Jesus would come back soon. But what many of them say is, but they were wrong. They were mistaken. They misunderstood what he was saying. We are smarter than they are. And I don't believe that at all, because I believe that God had reasons for wanting people to know that he could come back at any time. It's central to his promise. Now, the only way I know of, eschatologically, to, to deal with the imminent return of Christ is to believe in a rapture that comes before the tribulation. Because if a rapture comes like in the middle of the tribulation, once the tribulation starts, Antichrist comes to power, count three and a half years, there he is. If it's post-trib, you have him going into the Holy of Holies and desecrating it, count three and a half years, there's the rapture. If it comes, you know, in any other scheme, in an amillennial scheme or a post-millennial scheme or a preterist scheme, there's no way that it could come as a surprise because there are other things that are going to have to happen beforehand. Now, I also reject the idea, for instance, that Jesus couldn't have come until Israel was back in the land because I think that he could have come at any time over the last couple thousand years. And I believe every believer needs to live. We do best when we are thinking he could come at any time. And that's his promise of immediacy that's made throughout Scripture, and it's something that he wants you and me to know personally. At least that's my opinion. And I, and I don't want to make it like, oh yeah, there's no way to believe any other way because there are plenty of good people who believe other perspectives on this. And, and I love them, and I respect their right to be incorrect. Um, they're great people, but I think they're wrong in this. But again, I could be wrong, We'll see. But I am going to live my life expecting Jesus to come back at any time. I've had this conversation with Pastor Chuck a lot of times. You know, he's 84 now and just got a, a knee replacement. And, you know, people are just going hinting around like, Chuck, you're going to die pretty soon. What's going to happen after you're gone? What's going to happen to Calvary? And Chuck said, and he said it to me many times, I don't expect to die. I expect Jesus to take me up in the rapture. Now, you can look at 84-year-old guys saying that and go, 
wake up and smell the coffee. But what does that do to your life if you really have that sense? And that's the sense that I want God, I think God wants each of us to have, to know personally that there is a promise of his imminent return. And we see it here in this passage. And it's vital to the idea of heaven because this promise is what takes us back to everything that he says heaven is going to be. And it gives us a perspective. See, here's the thing. He has promised to just totally give us way more than we need in heaven. In heaven, you'll have everything that you want, just in abundance. And we saw some of it here in this water and this, and this therapy and, and this wonderful fruit that we get to eat, not because we're hungry, just because. And, and, you know, but in this life, you have some good things. God's given you more than you need, and praise God for that. But at some point, that's going to run down in one way or another. And there are some people right now who are enjoying their last few days in their house before it's, the foreclosure is finished. And you go, well, enjoy it while you can, and we should have that attitude. But the truth is, for many people, you might have more than you need technically, but do you feel that God is luxuriating on you? Do you feel like God is giving you so much? Maybe not. But his promise says he will. And you will have for all of eternity, you'll inherit the earth. The kingdom of heaven is yours as the Beatitudes make all these promises. It's the whole idea. Get a grip on the fact that very soon you're going to be with him. Whether you die and go to be with him or whether he takes us together, what happens on this earth is not the end of all luxury. There's a luxury that's coming where you'll have everything that you could ever need or want. And then in terms of ministry, it's a blessing to be used by God. There's no question about it. And I appreciate those opportunities. But, you know, it's not perfect here. You may not be doing for the Lord what you really want to be doing. Or you may find out that in serving, the people that you serve sometimes aren't worth it. You know, maybe you're somebody who thought, ooh, I would love to teach Sunday school because you don't have kids and you think that kids are like butterflies. They're just like so beautiful and so innocent and... and once you have kids, you realize there's nothing innocent about those kids, and, and they can just be totally destroy your life. And so then you go to serve, and you're like, they're not, they don't think I'm cool at all. They're not impressed by me. They're like, they get away with whatever they can. They want to run all over me. And you go, this is frustrating. And I mean, it's true for a pastor. I love being a pastor. But some of the people that you get to pastor are like, wait, how did... How did this monster get in the fold of sheep? You know, what is going on with that? And, and, and you just, you, you go, this is ministry and I'm thankful for it. But man, it's not, it'd be great. Ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. And, <laughs> but ultimately to know that what God has for us is a promise of that perfectly. The best experience you've ever had at work. Way better work than that. Perfect boss, perfect environment. You have an opportunity to use every gift that you have to do everything that you love to do. 
And, and that's what we look forward to. And then in terms of intimacy with God, you, you know, you, you feel like, yeah, I've been close to God. I mean, that, I remember that one time that song came into my head and it was like, wow. Or I just opened my Bible and wham, this verse it was just so clear. It addressed perfectly what I, what I wanted to hear, what I needed to hear from God. And, and we go, yeah, in my life as a Christian, I have had literally many moments of intimacy with God. And you can just try to manufacture more by working it up, and it's just not the same. You can go, I want to go back and find that verse again, and you read it, and it's like, what? That really, really, that made me, I mean, it's a nice verse, but that? You hear that song, and you go, why did I ever think that song was so special? Or you go to that place where you met God, and you get there, and he's not there this time, and you just go, this is frustrating because we get glimpses of him. But the promise of heaven is the promise of perfect intimacy with him in every way. So here we get little flashes. There the promise is, man, you're going to be so close to him that you'll know him all the time. You'll look like him and you'll be with him. You'll understand. You'll know what he's thinking and you'll know others the way he knows them. You'll look at others with his grace. It's a beautiful thing that we experience little bits now, but we look forward to whatever is a letdown in what we have or don't have, in what we are able to do or what we don't do, or in how we know him or don't know him, the promise is clear that we look forward to a day when we have all of this stuff going on for us. And that's a blessing. Yesterday, I had some time in my day in the afternoon to just go get on my motorcycle and go for a ride up the coast. And it was a gorgeous day. It was just beautiful. And I'm riding and I'm feeling the breeze and I'm looking at the ocean and nice air. And I'm just thinking, God, you are so good. I, I feel so blessed, so lucky that I live this close to the beach, that I can look out at the ocean and see the waves, that I can ride my motorcycle and feel that exhilaration of, you know, popping the, the throttle a little bit and hearing alarms going off. And, and it's just like, God, thank you for this beauty. Thank you for Harley Davidson. Thank you. And it was just, I love it. And then I, I got down to, to, the, to Corona Del Mar and I rode down and I parked and I went and sat on the cliffs. And I, whenever I get down there, I think of ministry because when I first became a pastor and first came on staff at Calvary Chapel, one of the first things we did after I came on staff is we had one of our baptisms. And we used to have baptisms, hundreds and hundreds of people you baptized. New believers, it was just... And I remember standing there in the water at my first baptism and just thinking... And some of the pastors were like, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. And so they pretty much left. I'm standing in the water. Pastor Chuck still has a line of people who wanted to get baptized. And I stood there in the water and I thought, God, don't ever let me take this for granted. This is the most amazing privilege that there is to, to hold your spiritual babies in my arms and to pray for them and to baptize them. God, please don't ever let me forget what this is like. And sometimes in ministry, you can forget you can lose sight of that. And, I, and going back there, it was just like I, I was transported back in time to that moment when it was like, when I knew what a privilege it was to just represent God and to serve Him. 
And then I looked around and I thought, in terms of intimacy with God, some of the times that I've felt closest to God were right there. Oh, sometimes at night I would go down after the beach was closed and they kicked everyone off the beach, but the fires were kind of left burning. And because I was a police chaplain in Newport, I could go down on the beach after they kicked everyone off and, and just have great times with the Lord. They did the fire for me. It was at its best moments and just being close to him and looking up at the sky yesterday and seeing the wispy clouds and thinking of all the times I would lie on my back and look at those clouds and think about Jesus coming back in the clouds and it could happen at any time. And so in, in looking at all that yesterday, I'm like, yes, God, I'm rich. And Yes, God, I get to serve you, and that's a privilege. And yes, God, I get to see you. I get to know you in, in ways that are amazing. But then I thought, God, the promise, that's where it's at. Ultimately, that what I see on this earth, that's the best that it ever gets on this earth, is just a glimpse of the promise that you have made of an eternity with you, where all of these things I have in just superabundance. And so I love the fact that his promise completes the picture of these other blessings of how he interacts with us. And, and that's what makes heaven personal. It's not just a cool place, but it's that place where he meets us in those areas and in those ways. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word and for the reminders from your word of how you love to give us more than we need and how you like to use us, and how you love to come close and touch us, and how you promise that what we see here is nothing compared to what we are going to see. The promise that you could come back today, that you could come back before third service. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We thank you for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks for these reminders from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.